The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Leslie Mickelson. She's a fellow registered dietitian. She also holds a Master's of Public Health from the University of California, Berkeley, and is Managing Director at the Prevention Institute with offices in Oakland, California, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C., Leslie leads the Health System Transformation Team, which promotes strategies to strengthen population health and advance health equity through community-based prevention. She co-founded and served as Project Director for the Strategic Alliance for Healthy Food and Activity Environments, and she previously worked for the Alameda County Community Food Bank in Oakland, California, and Food for Survival Food Bank in New York City. I recently heard her speak at the 2017 Association for Healthcare Journalists annual meeting where she served on a panel titled Nutrition and the Evolving American Diet. Welcome, Leslie. It's a pleasure to have you with me. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, we should probably start with an introduction to the Prevention Institute, right? Who are you and what do you do as an organization? Prevention Institute was founded just 20 years ago. We just celebrated our anniversary, and we had a very simple mission, which is to promote greater investment in this country in prevention, and especially our goal is to really provide community members with the tools they need to effectively prevent illness and injury. Mm-hmm. Community factors being the key choice of words there. You know, I think that we probably agree on this, although we've not had this discussion, but I think so often in dietetics and in health period, we don't have enough emphasis on prevention. It's always treating the illness after the fact. And I think, too, that so often when someone has a problem, we typically say, well, if you're overweight, if you've got whatever problem it might be, it's related to the fact that the individual is not making good choices personally rather than looking at the larger environment in which that person lives. Well, I so agree with you, and it very much, as you alluded, is the premise of Prevention Institute, that quality prevention practice, the successes we've seen in a host of issues from tobacco control to violence prevention to more recently a focus on promoting healthy food and healthy eating, the community environment is key There's a fantastic quote from the National Academy of Medicine, which did a report on health behaviors, recognizing that especially tobacco, food, and activity are so pivotal for chronic disease prevention. And what they concluded is it is unreasonable to expect that people change their behavior easily when so many forces in the social, physical, and cultural environment conspire against such change. Yeah, let's talk about some of those forces. Sure. Well, specifically, I'll talk about food because as a nutritionist, that has definitely been my passion and my entry point into thinking about prevention more broadly. And when I look at 
the choices folks are making that are unhealthy, be it eating too many highly processed foods, fast food, lots of soda, snack foods. What I see is a food supply that has shifted dramatically in the last 50, 60, 70 years, and that there is a huge vested interest from large food corporations in producing highly processed products that, frankly, strip out a lot of the nutrition, a lot of the nutritional value, and add in fat, salt, and sugar. And I really think, as a nutritionist, one day I sort of had this revelation as I was studying nutrition. It was like, wow, if a thousand years ago when people had evolved in communities and were, had developed agriculture very suited to their community environment, to what grew well there, they came up with nutritionally balanced diets. Mm-hmm. And they didn't need nutrition professionals to help support them what to choose. What we've seen especially post-World War II in this country, is this massive flooding of our grocery stores, of convenience stores, with food that really isn't healthy for us. And it's no wonder that we've seen a huge spike in diet-related diseases. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring this up because one of the forces that I think both of us are highly aware of is the influence of media. And you've got a great video at your website, and I will make sure to provide a link for our listeners, but it's called We're Not Buying It. And it talks about how children in particular are targeted by the food industry to make them want certain foods and beverages that are not in their best interests. That is so accurate. And we produced We're Not Buying It at a time when Federal policy, it was really at the early days of the administration of President Obama, was really taking a hard look at the problem of obesity in this country and, more importantly, diabetes and heart disease that were resulting from obesity and was saying, what are the forces that we can address, especially to prevent obesity in our children? And marketing came up huge. And we produced We're Not Buying It to help inform a federal policy discussion that was going on, especially at that time, related to whether or not there would be stronger requirements on labeling and mislabeling of foods. What we saw over and over again was billions of dollars being spent by companies to make these highly processed foods, which are the ones that are most profitable for them. I mean, that's the reason. It's all about the business and the bottom line of of businesses that are selling snacks, candy, fast food, sugar-sweetened beverages, to really cultivate desire among kids for those things, to make those the attractive products, to link them with kids' characters. And what was amazing as the conversation, there was a great acknowledgement in the country that we couldn't afford so much illness that was resulting from poor diets. We really can't afford it. We can't afford it in terms of the loss of productive members of society, and we can't afford the health care costs. And companies were kind of rolling over backwards like Pepsi to say, oh, we really care, we want to change our products. And yet they were still doing this intensive marketing. I mean, billions spent and lots of research to figure out what would really appeal to kids to get kids, frankly, hooked on some of their products at an early age. Right. And then in addition to driving the desire providing these products at every turn, you know, on every corner. It's so easy to find the less healthful choice. It just seems that we are in this environment that does not support 
the prevention of the chronic diseases that are bankrupting us as a country. That is absolutely, I so agree. And I think when it really came home to me how, I want to almost say obscene, the penetration of these unhealthy foods into our society was, was when I was in a hardware store in Berkeley, California, where I live, and there was a whole candy rack and candy and chips and soda. Or then I saw it again in actually FedEx Kinko's. I mean, places when I was a kid, you would never have bought food. And it was very smart and savvy on the part of the companies. Again, you know, their interest, and I mean, that's fair. Their interest is to sell these products and to find new markets. Suddenly, you had soda, fast food, and snack machines lining high school halls. Again, when I was growing up, there might have been a Coke machine in the teacher's lounge maybe in the boys' P.E. locker room, but you never saw it in the hallways, you never saw it in the cafeterias. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there are two issues that I want to bring up related to this healthy eating environment that I'd really like your thoughts on. The first is that whenever we try to change the environment, many of us who work in the field of prevention and public health are told you're creating a nanny state. How do you respond to that? There's two key responses I have. One, government decisions are shaping the environment we have. That is a fact. For example, the IRS allows corporations to write off a portion of marketing costs on their taxes, corporate taxes. So that means we are, in fact, as a public, subsidizing marketing to children of unhealthy foods. Another example in local government is the kinds of rules that are set for what land is set aside for agriculture, what kind of incentives are there to open up healthy food retail in a certain part of the community. So the idea that there's we're trying to create a nanny state, I, I just feel is irrelevant. I think the fact is that policy decisions shape our environment And what public health advocates have been saying is let's look carefully at that rulemaking and those decisions and think about how we can set up effective guidance and guidelines that incentivize shifting the environment back to be more healthy. Yeah, and I think that more people need to know just how much the government is already in place, as you mentioned, influencing our decisions very far back or very far removed from the everyday purchase, and we just don't realize just how strong the influence is. The other component that I often hear, and you do too, I'm sure, is, you know, all we need is more education. Go ahead and leave the environment alone. Let there be a Coke machine on every corner. Just let's give people more education and they'll make the right decision. How do you respond to that? People do not make their food choices based on knowledge or information, and that is well confirmed by decades of scientific research. I think it's also well confirmed by common sense that we are wired as a species to want calories, to need calories for survival, and we've changed our environment in a way that they're just far too available and we're not able to access the nutrition we need. So I think it's critical that we really make these environmental choices because 
It's what we experience in our daily lives, what's available, that has the strongest influence on our choices, not information. You know, this is such an important point because I think that we were both trained, we were steeped in nutrition education. You know, I think nutrition education is important. We need to know where we get vitamin A and vitamin C so we can make choices among healthy foods. But at the same time, you hear this all the time that if only people knew, I don't think there's a person out there that doesn't know that eating more fruits and vegetables is beneficial. It's the environment. It's the constructed environment in which we live that determines which food we're going to take based on emotional reasons, really. Well, emotional and just what's the norm. Mm. I mean, that's how I, I would talk about it is I think right now the norm is convenience food, the norm well, I should say the norm for folks with resources tends to be eating out. And also, we haven't really talked about the issues of equity. We have a huge number of people in this country who are struggling to earn a living wage, which means they're struggling to purchase healthy food for themselves and their families. When we see the market penetration and, the, frankly, the relatively very cheap prices of fast food, you know, if I'm living on a budget and I have a couple of kids to feed and I've worked long hours all day, I think it's very understandable that I'm going to go out to a place where I can get a dollar menu and if I can get a toy for my kids too to keep them happy. I think it's very understandable and reasonable decision. And that's why we need strong community collaboration across multiple sectors with community residents, with looking at what government to do to really start to reshape our environments to support healthy food being accessible, available, affordable. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Leslie Mickelson. She is a fellow registered dietitian. She holds a Master's of Public Health from the University of California, and she is Managing Director at the Prevention Institute. Well, I want to talk more about equity because I think this is such an important point to make, especially in our society right now that we are not all playing at a level playing field. And I think that we need government to help level that playing field. And yet there's such a push for less government. And I really enjoyed your presentation on the panel. In We were in Orlando with the Association of Healthcare Journalists. And you talked about your perspective on the role of government. And I wonder if you could share a little bit of that philosophy with us. Absolutely. I as I stated earlier, that government makes rules every day, right? The job of government officials, of legislative bodies, is to set rules, and these rules incentivize certain kinds of actions and either directly prohibit or discourage other kinds. And one place I can illustrate that really, really well has to do with access to full-service grocery stores. Mm. We have seen, actually, starting in the late 60s, but really accelerating in the 1980s, a real flight of full-service grocery stores out of neighborhoods where there were concentrated households living at the poverty level. This included inner city areas, and it also included rural areas have their own access problems because of the lack of concentration of people. And supermarkets sort of changed their model. 
to want really big places, so they were tending to move to the suburbs. Well, this has created, I mean, literally a crisis in access to healthy food in neighborhoods. Everyone in the United States, when you look at the stats, they spend the majority of their food purchasing dollars in grocery stores. So the question is, how much extra do folks living in a neighborhood that no longer has a store have to spend to get to that food? They may have to get a taxi if they don't own a car. When they do want to go to the store in their neighborhood, it's often a small liquor store that mostly has highly processed convenience foods because they want shelf-stable items. So that's the trend we've seen. There has been some really strong efforts, some by individual cities like Philadelphia or Chicago, to set policies to attract back supermarkets, and they do this by doing things like expedited permitting by allowing the stores to not have to have so many parking places because, after all, we want to encourage people to walk to their stores anyway or bring their grocery carts by redirecting public transit lines so that it's easy if a family doesn't have a car that they can get on a bus and only have to take one bus, not two buses, to get to the grocery store. So I want to illustrate that. I think talking about government role, it's important to be very concrete. And, again, I want to emphasize Government is involved, and I think that there's sort of a – often as you those decisions are made behind the scenes – not really behind the scenes, but they're administrative decisions. So unless you're interested as a member of the public in what's happening, you wouldn't necessarily know those are decisions are being made. And I think it makes a lot of sense, and every – public health issue I've looked at, from tobacco control to lead poisoning prevention, we've needed government to be the place that the different interests, business, community residents, different sectors come together and have discussions and make decisions together about what we want our community to look like. Exactly. You know, I think, too, a good example of the role of government, we might talk about the water in Flint, Michigan, or any contaminated water source. You know, the individual can certainly buy a water filter, but I think you and I would agree that it's government that provides a service for all of us so that individually we don't have to go to the expense of protecting our own individual water source. But it's this body that largely looks out for the group or the community in the country and asking for less government the unintended consequences of that I don't think are fully understood. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, I'd like to jump into a piece of a document that the Prevention Institute produced that I am especially fond of, and it was titled Setting the Record Straight, Nutrition and Health Professionals Define Healthful Food. And I love it because it moves us from the nutrients on the plate to thinking about food in a much broader sense. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this document came to be. Sure. This document came from conversations with many nutritionists, some registered dietitians, that realized, why did we go into this field? We went into it because we cared about health. Food production, beginning with agriculture, processing, transportation, turns out is a huge portion of economic activity in the United States, it's also a huge impactor of the natural environment, air quality, water quality, soil quality. And what I learned working in California was I could be promoting eating healthy fruits and vegetables. Meanwhile, the Central Valley of California, the main bread 
place growing these fruits and vegetables had some of the highest asthma rates in the country because of the pesticides that were being applied and getting airborne and because of the concentrated animal feeding operations that were being used to produce meat and poultry that were also polluting the air. That combined with car exhaust was creating a huge toxic air quality that was inducing childhood asthma. So for me to to focus on fruits and vegetables and leave out that whole other part meant that I wasn't really going to succeed at all in promoting the health of the public. Another part of what we put into setting the record straight, along with the environmental quality and sustainability being key and nutrition, healthful food products, was really looking at the plight of workers in the food system. Farmers and agricultural workers are having trouble making a decent living in this country. California ag worker households are some of the most food insecure in the country. The irony that here they are growing food and yet their families are suffering from from hunger-related or poor diet-related diseases because they don't make a living wage. So we felt as nutritionists, and it was my colleague Juliet Sims here at Prevention Institute and some other folks I had met over the years in our field who put our heads together and said, we really need a strong statement. We also created it at the time that there was so much discussion about chronic disease, and a lot of the discussion was talking about healthful food, and really the health departments were starting to try to do more concerted campaigns to improve healthy eating in their communities, and we felt if all they did was focus on the nutrients, in the end, they might not really succeed in improving the health of the public because of these issues of toxic contamination, food insecurity that also were critical to address for a healthy community. Well, it's a wonderful document. I'm going to provide a link along with our interview because I I think it's important to study the principles in this. And the second paragraph starts with this line, our definition of healthful food is not limited to the nutrients that a food contains. Our definition recognizes that healthful food comes from a food system where food is produced, processed, transported, and marketed in ways that are environmentally sound, sustainable, and just. So when we start looking beyond the lean chicken breast, the low-sodium, low-fat food that's been promoted throughout nutrition during our careers, and we start looking beyond that to the production system, we open up a whole other universe, don't we? We sure do. And we, I think, also open up how important our National Farm Bill, which gets renewed every five years, is in impacting not only the food supply we have, what kind of food options are available, but whether that food is produced and transported in a sustainable way. Right. Tell me something, Leslie. What projects are you working on now that you would like our listeners to know about? Right now, one thing we are working on as an organization that is very important is preserving the Prevention and Public Health Fund as part of the preservation of access to affordable care. This is part of the Federal Affordable Care Act. It is part of the budget that gets debated every year. And it was a great breakthrough that really built on years of of community-based efforts to promote healthy food and activity environments for the Affordable Care Act to include an investment that was supposed to move up to being $15 billion over 10 years to really support the public health and community prevention efforts that can prevent 
chronic disease. Unfortunately, this fund has been under attack from nearly day one as being considered less important than investments in healthcare. And I am just passionate about the fact that we can only have a health system that can afford to provide access and care to all if we also simultaneously invest in prevention. I think investing in prevention, first of all, is better for all of us. I mean, even if you can manage your chronic disease, we know that quality of life is better if you never have to grapple with that problem in the first place. And that's, of course, assuming you're managing at a well level at a pretty early stage. For many, many folks, they're suffering horribly debilitating impacts of chronic disease. So I really want folks to be aware, and they can look on the Prevention Institute website for information about federal policy, to be aware that the Prevention and Public Health Fund really stands for our country recognizing that we not only want a system of sick care, we want a system of health. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. I think a strategy for success in promoting these policies is to bring together people from all walks of life, people that you might not think would be in line with your way of thinking. And I I think of the Department of Defense right now, and there's been so much talk and emphasis about kids going into the military, not being fit enough to fight. I mean, I'm not in favor of of war, certainly, but it's interesting to see who aligns with us when we come to the table and want to talk about public health. There are people who have different reasons for wanting to have a healthy community. Well, I think actually health is widely valued among the public. That said, I think It's not necessarily widely known that you can really, even though the information is out there about nutrition, I think there's not a strong belief that you can really prevent illness and injury. I think some folks think, oh, it's just fate, it just happened, Mm -hmm. bad luck. Yet, in fact, we know a lot. We, through strong scientific research, through the wisdom of community practitioners, the wisdom of community residents, we've learned a lot collectively as a society about what it takes to promote healthy life. And to me, it's just common sense that we would want to apply that to maximize everyone's opportunity to be healthy. And as you say, clearly, anyone running a business doesn't want their workers staying home sick. I mean, you know that 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 reeks. And you also, when they're at work, you want them feeling good and really being productive. So it's good for business. We also know kids in schools aren't going to learn if they're not healthy, if they're not able to show up at school. So it really affects us. And, of course, and perhaps most importantly and immediately for all of us, the health of our family members is critical. And if one family member isn't healthy, that affects everyone in the family. So I really think that investing in prevention is of universal value to all of us. You know, I think we need more of an accounting system that shows us what the full cost is for not having a society that promotes prevention. I think that makes sense, and I do think there is some headway being made on that. We, In looking at all the costs of health, there's a tendency to look only at the healthcare-related costs, but I think there, there are economists who are working in trying to really build out those costs related to worker productivity or even to, in some cases with health issues, into the environmental damage that then in turn negatively impacts our society's functioning. 
Well, Leslie, I want to thank you so much for certainly being my guest and most importantly, all of the great work that the Prevention Institute is doing. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And especially, I want to thank my guest, Leslie Mickelson, Managing Director at the Prevention Institute based in Oakland, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C. Leslie, thank you so much, and I'll provide links to the Prevention Institute so people can get more information. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.